Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now, your inside look into the best of vice. It's Monday, July 30th. I'm Sophie Casas. Today, we've got a sneak peek for you. We're talking about the forthcoming book, History Versus Women, the defiant lives they don't want you to know. A lot of women's history remains untold, distorted, or fragmented. And there are so many women who have made such important impacts, but who the majority of people know absolutely nothing about. To reclaim these stories, authors Anita Sarkeesian and Ebony Adams wrote a book called History Versus Women that profiles 25 remarkable women throughout history. They're rebels, rulers, scientists, artists, warriors, and even villains. Anita Sarkeesian is an award-winning media critic and the founder of Feminist Frequency, an educational nonprofit that explores representations of women in pop culture. And Ebony Adams is an author and activist whose work foregrounds the lives and work of Black women in the diaspora. And she writes widely on film criticism, social justice, and pop culture. Here's Vice's executive editor, Dori Carr-Harris, speaking with both Anita and Ebony on their book, History Versus Women. Hi, Anita. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having us. And Ebony, so glad to have you here. Thanks. I'm really happy to be here. How did you guys sort of conceive of this idea? And I would love to know how you sort of boiled it down to your elevator pitch. (laughs) Yeah. So Ebony and I both work at Feminist Frequency, and we released a series of videos a few years ago called Ordinary Women, And it was a five-part series where we told the stories of women who we thought people should know about and don't know about. And that turned into a book proposal, which then turned into this book. So that's kind of where this came from. Um, We went from talking about five women to talking about 25 women. You know, the book was obviously a really big endeavor into deciding, like, who to talk about, who to research, who to include. I guess I'm interested in why you guys wanted to, you know, build this out further and also what made you feel like you wanted to start your initial series. Well, the initial series was actually an idea that I had conceived of many, many years ago and I never had the time to create it. So When there was sort of an opening in Feminist Frequencies programming, I just decided that now was the time to do that. Uh, It's kind of as simple as that. I was just like, there's all these stories of these women who we don't know about or who like are not a part of the, the popular consciousness of our societies in the same way that a lot of men are. And I wanted to just sort of highlight those stories and get people kind of excited about learning about our past, because I think it's important to understand where we came from in order to understand where we're going. 
Yeah, I mean, I think we wanted to make sure that we were not creating something that was just going to live on a shelf. You know, there, there's nothing wrong with textbooks, right? But we wanted something that was going to be kind of a, a living invitation uh, to to anyone, to everyone, to learn more about the women who've been left out of history. I think a lot of lip service is paid to unheard voices, you know, to to lives that haven't been explored and celebrated. But the fact is that so many of these amazing women from history have just been lost to us. And so, yeah, it was a, it was a matter of reclamation, but it was also just an incredibly fun project to work on. And we wanted to kind of get people in on the fun. Like it is just, it's mind blowing to me that people don't know about people like my Bago or Bessie Stringfield. Like we, we just, we wanted those names to be in, you know, the cultural imagination. Yeah, absolutely. And so the book is broken down into these sort of five overarching categories of women from rebels to artists to what you call Amazons, but I suppose we could contemporarily categorize them as athletes to a certain extent. How did you go about this selection process? Did you choose the women who you wanted to feature first and then figure out these sort of categories that they fell into? Or did you think sort of systematically about the different types of women that you wanted to highlight and then look for potential people to feature under them? Unfortunately, for many of these women, there are not a lot of, you know, primary or even secondary sources. Um, so, you know, we were, we were doing really hard work excavating some of their stories. As hard as that was, the process of choosing who to feature was just mind-bogglingly difficult because once we began the process of kind of gathering um, these stories, everyone seemed worthy. And the process of narrowing it down was really helped by kind of thinking thematically about what is it, like what sorts of areas have women traditionally been excluded from? Where have their stories not been told? What have they not been allowed to do? Or what are some things that, you know, we don't typically think about women doing? And so I think that's why one of the uh, the sections that was kind of, you know, most energizing for Anita and I to work on was the villain section, which went through, you know, several names and kind of several iterations. But the idea that we want to present a really, you know, multifaceted view of global history, but specifically women's history that takes into account the ways that women have, you know, occasionally been incredibly horrible. Um, so yeah, I think it was a, a matter of just like looking at the ways that women have been excluded and the arenas from which they've been excluded and saying, okay, if we want to talk about amazing female artists, who are some samples we can talk about? We're not saying these are the only ones that people uh, should know about, or even that these are the best ones that they should know about, but just like, these are some captivating stories. These are samples. And if you want to learn more, there's more out there for you to learn about. Yeah, and I just want to jump in about the villain section, because that was really important to us, like Ebony said. When we did Ordinary Women, the original series, we included a pirate. And she was ruthless and awful and probably murdered a lot of people like, without a doubt. So fascinating. Yeah. So she has a wild, interesting life. And I got a lot of pushback on that because people are like, why are you celebrating an evil woman? And I was like, well, we're not celebrating, but we're acknowledging that she existed. And that was really the impetus for including an entire villain section to be like, hey, 
The work of feminism is not to only acknowledge the lives of women that we deem good or worthy for whatever that means in that moment in history. And it's not just claiming women are inherently virtuous or ethical. It's about liberating all people. And part of that is understanding that women have the same capacity for good and evil as all other people of all other genders. And so it's by far my favorite part of the book because it's just these stories are wild. And we don't think of women like that. And I think it's important to position that in the larger historical take. We <laughs> we included Margaret Thatcher in that section because it was really important to us to take a position on the fact that a lot of other tales about Margaret Thatcher, the first female prime minister of the UK, um, talk about how she's feminist. And we're like, no, she's absolutely not. And I think that that's one of the ways that our book stands out is we are taking positions and we are trying to reframe some of the stories that you might already have heard and and be like, well, maybe there's another way to look at this. Yeah, I mean, I had wanted to talk to you guys about the Margaret Thatcher section of the book because I think it's going to be quite controversial. And I'm wondering if you're expecting blowback, if the point is to start conversation, if the point is to obviously take a stance with all of these different profiles, but obviously it comes into play much more starkly when we're talking about people uh, about whom you're taking a slightly less, quote unquote, celebratory stance on. Uh, What went through the thought process in including her? And also, how are you guys expecting this to be received? Oh, I fully expect that there will be a lot of controversy. There will be a lot of kind of half-baked hot takes on the internet, uh, which is (laughs) something that we are pretty familiar with at Feminist Frequency. But I think the idea that a woman, purely by achieving a level of, you know, wealth or power is necessarily feminist is a myth. And I think it's a particularly, you know, horrifying myth that many people have uncritically bought into. And I think it's, you know, it's crucial as we raise this next generation that we really start to interrogate what it means to be a feminist and how that is entirely separate from being, you know, a powerful woman or simply, you know, a badass, Um, you know. So, yeah, I, I fully expect that our inbox is... I'm prepared for the deluge um, of, you know, people to want to argue with us and, you know, send in, you know, cut and paste screeds from The Economist. I'm here for it. Whatever. We stand by the work that we did. Margaret Thatcher is responsible for some of the most repressive policies. It's amazing to me that she can be held up as an example of what a woman can do when she puts her mind to it, as if that is, you know, an unalloyed good, which she... The, the things that she did to hurt the labor movement, to hurt the LGBT community. No, we're not here for it. Margaret Villain absolutely earned her place in the villain section. <laughs> no, I think it's important. I mean, what's interesting to me is what you guys are talking about when you're almost using this as a way to define your own version of feminism. I'm wondering if there was sort of a through line for each of these women or specific criteria or even benchmarks, for lack of a better term, that you felt people needed to meet to make it into the book, Um, whether that's a level of notoriety or power at the time or global influence um, once we get to some of the more contemporary examples. So originally you were asking about like how we chose them. And 
it wasn't like we created these sections and then filled them with women, but it's not like we didn't do that either. Um, we started with a giant list and we started to identify different traits of theirs and, you know, what fields they were in. And then, you know, it kind of organically just grew in its own way. But we selected several women who we were like, yes, we're going to put them in the book. We really like their stories. And then we went to research them and couldn't find enough about them. And part of writing this book was pretty tragic, to be honest, of like how little there is recorded about women's lives, about whose lives are worthy of being recorded. For example, you know, like there's a whole medieval period where women's lives were very, very rarely recorded. And it was hard for us to find women to put into those from that time period because we wanted to span as far a range as we possibly could. And so we specifically chose women who were kind of a range of known and unknown in terms of Western knowledge. You know, it's important to understand that just because we don't know about these women in the West doesn't mean that they're not revered and celebrated in their own cultures. And one of the things that occurred in the process of writing this book was that there weren't English language texts on some of the women we were talking about, and that limited the information we could access. And that's a limitation of our own perspective, right? That's not uh, to say that those women aren't worthy of discussing and talking about and, and revering as they are in their cultures. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I thought it was especially notable that you go into quite a great amount of detail in the acknowledgments, sort of explaining your research process and the challenges that you faced along it and sort of for basically getting out in front of and, and properly explaining sort of the reason that there could be considered to be a Western not bias, but a greater number of, you know, Western women and or people who are at least known in Western history. And so I'm I'm interested to know a little more about some of the other challenges that you faced going through this research process in addition to just being a little bit limited by the the source material that you had access to. One of the things that we needed to keep at the forefront of our minds was the audience for whom we were writing. So this is intended to be, you know, sort of squarely aimed at a younger audience, um, by which we mean like, you know, middle grade, you know, kind of YA audience, which is not to say that we don't think, you know, adults shouldn't grab this book or that, you know, it's not something that older folks can read to, to younger kids. But, you know, we had to constantly keep in mind how to frame these stories for that particular audience. Audience. So, you know, the the tone that we tried to achieve, we, we tried to be, I don't want to necessarily say conversational, but it, it almost was, you know, sort of conversational, like inviting people in. We wanted to be as engaging as possible. We wanted to maintain that sense of wonder um, and the delight in learning about someone new. Uh, so often we underestimate the the voracious appetite for knowledge that young people have and we expect them to consume things at the level that you know a grad student or you know a professional would consume them and I think that that ill serves that population so that was one of the challenges you know not speaking towards this audience that we that we hope to have in a way that we might speak to you know other adults who've been doing this kind of like cultural historical work for a long time you know, kind of reframing it um, in an appropriate way. So for some of the women where they're a little bit better known and there's more written about them, one of the things that I noticed was you'd read like 
two or three books on the topic of this woman's life. And then you'd read a third book and realize that all of the other books cited a, a bad source. And so for decades, the facts about these women were whatever they were. And then someone came along and was like, wait a minute, this is all wrong. And so like the way that we record history and the time period in which history is recorded and whether somebody bothers to come and like redo that research was a really fascinating process to me and also slightly frustrating. <laughs> frustrating because you're like oh I got it I know about this woman and then all of a sudden you're like oh man all right we got to like reassess what actually happened here so someone like Hypatia that's a perfect example of who I'm talking about the things that we most know about her is the her gruesome death and that was really sad to me and so with a lot of these women we're trying to position like how much can we know about their lives how much can we actually share about who they were and not just about like the one little tiny detail that gets told over and over and over again so you started the process of researching and writing this book in a post-trump america did the sort of current climate in terms of the way that women and female identifying people are treated influence the process of putting this together in any way? And are you concerned about the potential reception once the book is out? Uh, yeah, my personal answer is that no, I, I don't think on a conscious level anyway, that my process or my part of the project was influenced by the election of Trump. Because I, I for me, as a black woman in America, my day-to-day -day existence, you know, uh, whether it's online or in, you know, what they call real life was kind of already fraught, you know, always kind of have to be conscious of how I'm going to be received. There was always, you know, a kind of level of awareness that, that things were not the, the, the utopia that we like to pretend that they were. So I, I don't know that I consciously started looking at this book, this larger project in a different way. I do think that, you know, some of the wounds in our cultural fabric have been increasingly laid bare since the, the presidential election. And so do I think there's more of a need for this, um, you know, kind of project than there was before? Maybe not more of a need, but I'm so glad there are people doing it. And I, I, I'm well aware that many people are going to uh, receive this book in the spirit of why is this necessary? I think that's always kind of the response. Why do you need to do that? Everyone knows that women are just as capable as men. And we kind of... I think we need to reckon with how we say those things. We pay lip service to those kind of beliefs. But the reality is women and femmes and, you know, female identified folks, they're they're still treated as second class citizens. Yeah, I, I guess it's kind of a, a complicated answer. I'm not conscious of having changed my approach since the election of Trump. But I do think that, you know, it is a different atmosphere. I don't know that we can predict how this book is going to be received. But I think given where Anita and I work, given that, you know, we have lived in these bodies in this culture all of our lives we knew life wasn't going to be a crystal stare <laughs> I think that one of the things that we did with this is we really positioned why this matters in the book I think that there's several really great books that have come out recently that are doing similar work in terms of telling the stories of other women whose lives we should be sharing and understanding and learning about. But ours actually, we, every single section, we explain why this section is so important to your life today. In fact, the very first sentence of the book is, 
who cares about a bunch of dead women? Well, we do, and we think you should too. And I think the book then just lays out exactly why it matters, because it does. We're not just looking at history because it's a fun, interesting thing to do. We're looking at history so that we don't repeat the same oppressive patterns that we have been perpetuating for centuries. Right? We are at a moment where fighting for justice is incredibly crucial and important, and we can push through and see progress being made, and we need to continue doing that work. But we can't ignore or forget get where we came from and we can't repeat the same patterns that we've been repeating over and over again. And so I think like what Ebony's saying is that like the election of Trump didn't like super inform how we wrote this book, but our intersectional feminism, our lives, our experiences all were thrown into this book in terms of like how we approached it, why we think it's important, why we we think it's beyond just a piece of entertainment which we hope is entertaining but also incredibly educating and empowering for our readers. I really actually enjoyed especially the intro to the section on scholars. I think that it's a really good example of what you're talking about in terms of setting up kind of like the errors of history and how it's been recorded and explaining to a younger demographic sort of how these omissions take place. You know, people aren't allowed access into certain communities and the people who control historical narratives don't always include all of the people who are present in those narratives. So I think that that in itself was a really interesting part of the book to me, and I do think will really benefit a sort of, you know, younger generation of people who now will have an alternative to potentially what is being taught to them in school or an addition, which I think will be really important. In terms of of sort of looking forward, what are you really hoping that this book achieves? I hope that we will start to hear people talking about the women who are in this book. There are some of them who who are well known. Uh, people like Ida B. Wells. You know, th- these are not people whose legacies have been completely lost to history. But there are some folks that we are quite certain many people in this country have never heard of. And I just am so desperate for their names to be out there. And I want the folks who read this book to just get so excited about wanting more. I want this to really just whet their appetites for more stories, you know, of women's heroism and villainy and, you know, creative triumphs. I just, I want there to be such a demand for these stories that publishers and writers and libraries can't keep enough books on hand. Like that there's just an overwhelming tidal wave of people saying, yes, I want more. I want more. I want to help reframe the narrative of how we think about history and how we think about women. Because too often we hear things like, oh, well, women just didn't do anything back then, <laughs> right? Or or women weren't, aren't strong enough to be star athletes or women aren't, weren't or aren't smart enough to break through incredible like inventions and scientific discoveries. And I want us to I want to provide the tools to help young people specifically be more critical in the information that they're getting and be able to ask, you know, questions about, well, why aren't we telling these stories? Who are these women? Well, you know, there's loads of different questions we can ask. And I think this book really addresses a lot of that and can help bring some of that to the forefront of helping create a more media literate you know, community and society and a society that's much more critical. And I think we need to instill that from folks at a young age. And I hope that this book really 
inspires young people to ask the questions that they aren't being taught to ask, right? To question why women have been written out of history um, and and to be inspired by these women. Like, I'm telling you, there were so many times that Ebony and I were just like messaging each other while writing this being like, oh my God, like we just feel so like, what are we doing with our lives? Because <laughs> these women are so inspirational and just like, the things that they went through to achieve their dreams and their goals or to overcome adversity or whatever. Like, it's just, it was incredible to learn about these women. Do you guys have favorites? <laughs> um, so I really love, I didn't know about Griselda Blanco, who was uh, like a cocaine kingpin in Miami in the 1980s. And I think Ebony wrote that section and I think she did an amazing job of it. And I was riveted while I was reading it. So that's definitely one of my favorites. Honestly, Bessie Stringfield, like I, I might as well get her face tattooed on my bicep because <laughs> she is absolutely everything to me. I think there's a there's a, a way in which I'm in awe of so many women in this book. But the reality is I was never going to be an astronomer. I was never going to be a director. You know, I was never, you know, going to do some of the things that these women did. But for some reason, there is a part of me that feels like I could take to the open road, but in the year of our Lord, 2018, I could not do what Bessie Stringfield did in the 30s and 40s. She went out there on her own, and in the height of the Jim Crow era, this black woman owned the streets of America on the back of her bike when she could not find a place that would let her stay for the night, a hotel, a motel. She slept on her bike you know, propped up on the handlebars underneath gas station lights. I don't, I don't even know how to like mentally process the, the fearlessness she must've had. So Bessie Stringfield forever. People, you must know about this woman. Yeah. There's just, that. that's the thing is there's so many women that you're like, wow, how do we not know about these people? Like, the, and some of the stories are really my, like just, there's one woman who's a 13th century Mongolian princess who could not be beat at wrestling. Her whole thing was that um, she would marry the man who could beat her at wrestling and no one could. Like her parents started begging her to just throw a match so that she could get married. And it's just like that is not a common story that we hear. We don't think of like princesses from the 13th century who are so strong and so good at like physical skills um, and I want those to be our like bedtime stories that we tell children. Absolutely. What is next for the project? Is there a book two coming out? Are you guys going to do <laughs> Man, your own just, podcast or another video series? <laughs> <laughs> this may be hard to conceive of right now. Yeah, yeah. I'm all. Let, let's just get this book out and we'll see. <laughs> You know, I would love it. Anita's going to um, take away my internet access after I say this because I'm saying it, you know, sort of quasi in public. I would love it if there was a follow up to this book, you know, in the way that we have like five sections, we do kind of five unfortunately, very brief um, illustrations of these women. I would love it if there was a follow-up where we took each section and kind of explored more. Maybe not about these women in, uh, specifically, but about other people. So a section on villains or a book on villains or a book on, you know, amazing scholars, artists, etc. that allowed us to really kind of expand upon their stories and do more of a deep dive. It would be great to do a project like that, you know, in concert with, you know, people who are in those fields themselves. So a book on artists 
that is done in collaboration uh, with artists or a book on uh, scholars that's done in collaboration with academics, et cetera. You know, I would love to do something like that. Will we have the, the brain power to do it? Not for a year or more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you guys definitely deserve a break. <laughs> History vs. Women comes out on October 2nd. You can find it at historyvswomen.com, and it's also available for pre-order right now. For more information, go to vice.com. That's it for now. Thanks so much for listening. And tune in again on Monday for another Vice Guide to Right Now. <laughs>